You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Good morning and welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins. Um, we are re-releasing the podcast. I'm very excited. Uh, a lot of you, have, of course, were involved when the podcast was released previously, and I wanted to just take a minute to explain. We're going to have a little bit of a format change, not much. Um, you're still stuck with me and my opinionated self, and of course, books are still our main topic. They are our thing. Um, the change will be that I am going to be sharing the microphone with different people, um, a lot of them you may recognize. Some of them are authors, podcasters, what have you, entertainers, who knows? There could be quite a few different things going on. However, they're not here to talk about their own work. Um, we're going to let them introduce it because, I mean, really, I mean, they worked hard. They should get some recognition for what they've done. But the interest is we want to discuss the books that have inspired them in their work, in their journey, in in the entertainment value that they bring, in the literary value that they bring, what challenged them? What inspired them? How does it relate to God? Does it relate to God? Because not everything that inspires people actually looks spiritual. Um, but that's the beauty of it. That's our tagline. We're bridging that sacred secular divide book by book. Um, so that's a little bit of an explanation as to what we're going to be doing. Um, today, however, you're stuck with just me. Um, but it's a good book. I picked a good one. It's timely topic. Um, maybe some of you are tired of the topic. I am not. It's my, my topic of study and education, actually. Um, the topic is deconstruction. And I know, I know people are already rolling their eyes like, oh, I'm actually going to talk about deconstruction again. Yes, I am. Um, as I mentioned, this is part of my own educational, uh, journey. This is a part of my own literary work. Um, and as such, it, I read a lot of books on this topic. The book I'm bringing today, uh, actually, I listened to it on Audible first, and I listened to it twice, and finally I got the book, and I thought, this is a great book. Um, the book is actually called Bitten by a Camel, Leaving Church, Finding God. Uh, it's by Kent Dobson. That's Kent with a T. Make sure I get that out there and correct. Uh, so let me give you a little bit of background on Kent. Uh, Kent actually was a worship leader. He was a teacher, and he ultimately became the senior pastor of the church that Rob Bell stepped down from. I believe that's Mars Hill. Um, don't get confused. There's a couple different ones of those out there. Anyway, he actually took over that church when Rob Bell stepped down and begun began to kind of work through his own uh, changing theological ideas. Oh, my dogs are going to show up today. Sorry about that. Anyway, as such... Kent actually got bitten by the same bug, or a camel as the case may be, and as such, I want to talk a little bit about his journey, some of the things that he discussed in the in the writing of this book. Um, he actually had a very unique experience. I'm going to guess that the majority of people that are experiencing any form of deconstruction, and I say any form, and I'll clarify that in a few minutes, um, he actually went and climbed Mount Sinai in a search for God. I know, I know you're doing that next week and I'm probably going to get it in this summer. No, I'm kidding. Most people are not going to, uh, out of the country to climb Mount Sinai to find God. We're lucky if we hit our backyard to sit in nature for 10 minutes or hike a trail. This guy went and climbed Mount Sinai. Now, he had a great amount of, uh, what do we want to say, uh, hope for that experience. Um, I think he really thought that this would be the be-all, end-all experience of finding God. 
Um, ultimately, by the end of the book, you find out that's not what happened. Uh, but he actually did get bitten by a camel. That It's not just a metaphor for the book. It actually happened. I would freak out if I got bit by a camel, okay? Seriously, that's that camel would be getting punched in the face, honestly. Um, or I would just panic and scream a lot. Who knows? I mean, who who thinks about getting bit by a camel? I mean, that's craziness. Anyway, again, book on the subject of deconstruction. And, and he talks a little bit about the beginnings of his doubt and uncertainty. You know, I'll just, I'll go over that quickly. Uh, but basically it, it just came down to a lot of the things that he had been raised to believe that he had taught himself. Oh, how many of us have had that experience? Yes. Suddenly we're up for question. Um, it's, it's a destabilizing feeling. Many of you understand that. Um, and I want to go back and clarify something I said a minute ago, different levels of deconstruction. Um, I was actually on a podcast recently and we talked a little bit about that. Uh, the idea that for some people, deconstruction means that they have chosen one or two tenets of their Christian belief or their religious belief, and they've decided they're not sure if they buy into that anymore. For example, do I buy into hell as a place? Do I buy into the idea of end times, uh, eschatology? Um, and, and so they may, they may come out of that very quickly, very easily, uh, not, not totally unscathed, but certainly not bleeding or losing limbs over it. I know that's dramatic, but that's how I am. Um, anyway, that, that's great. Uh, That is definitely valid. I'm not, I'm not, uh, invalidating that at all. Um, then there are people that go a little further down the dark road, down the dark path, uh, reaching a place where they actually begin to question God himself, whether it's worth having a relationship with him. Um, does he even exist? And then finally, I don't even know if it's finally, but in the in my scenario, the the last group of people are those that go even further. It's not just a deconstruction of a belief. It's not a deconstruction of God. It's a deconstruction of life themselves, their deepest, darkest persona, um, which gets really ugly and very, very, very dark. And it can be a scary place to be. So I just wanted to clarify that because I believe in all of those places. Uh, I believe all of those are valid experiences. And on the subject of deconstruction, I think we also have to keep in mind that even though we've heard so many different stories and so many different books have been written on this subject, every one of them is going to be different and different, maybe not in experience or in subject matter, I should say, but definitely an experience because we're each a different people. We come from different backgrounds. We have different families. We have different uh, religious upbringing. We have different personalities. And because of that, each one of us experiences this very, very, very differently. And so I want to make sure that we understand that just because somebody is experiencing something in this process, it doesn't mean you're going to. It doesn't negate that they have and you didn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, so we want to be very gracious and generous and merciful to one another in this process because let's face it, this process kind of rings us out. Um, so getting into his book a little bit, as I said, a little bit of background. Um, if memory serves at the beginning of the book, he actually talks about the fact that his father worked for Jerry Falwell. Uh, his mother went to Bob Jones University. So that tells you a little bit about the background that he came from as far as his Christian upbringing and belief systems. Uh, if it doesn't, you should check those things out. Um, I'm not going to spell them out here for you. Uh, so he actually asks a couple questions that I have asked myself as well. Um, if I'm a religious failure, 
shouldn't I just embrace it? In other words, why, why the hell not go all out? I mean, who cares now, right? I'm questioning y'all, what difference does it make? Um, so it's kind of like a, a pendulum swing, right? In the wake of doubt. So we sit around and we try to decide how far is too far. Um, I know that that's going to be different for every person as well. And as a matter of fact, I've done writing before in which I suggested that grace by definition cannot be grace unless you abuse the hell out of it. All right. Now, that is not a tacit endorsement of you going out and doing everything that you've always kept yourself from doing. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is a very real ebb and flow to this process. And we're all going to do or say things that maybe we would never have done or said before. And maybe we won't again in the future. But for a while, we're finding that balance. And so while we've been so far to one side for so long, we're going to do a swing. And there's going to be things that happen. And a lot of times, this is where people get very judged. And this is where they get uh, taken apart of the seams by their family and friends. This is where they get excommunicated. Hey, hello, been kicked out of a church. So this is where the process gets down and dirty. Okay. So anyway, I, I just want to preface all of what I'm going to talk about in this book because I really feel like he does a good job of talking about some of those things. In other areas, I think maybe he needed to go a little further, but that's okay because that's what other books are for. Um, anyway, his experience, as I said, he went to Mount Sinai. And I want to read this quote to you uh, at the beginning of the book. It says, on Sinai, I didn't find the God I was looking for. Bummer. I descended the mountain as an utter spiritual failure, unable to fast, unable to pray, unable to say what I believed, unsure of the Bible, but it was the start of a new faith journey, though I didn't know that at the time. Jerusalem and Sinai were metaphors for what was happening in me. I went out to find something over there in a special place, but that something never showed up, not in any way I could recognize. I couldn't find God in the most holy place on earth, so I had to stumble home and say, I don't know. And this was all the enlightenment I could muster. Now, I'm going to start out by saying, it's been a, I, I'm in year seven of this journey, not to discourage anybody, because trust me, that would have discouraged me in the beginning as well. Um, I'm still around, still, still asking the questions. Being able to say, I don't know, is probably the most spiritual place you will ever find yourself. And I say that with full conviction, full experience, experiential conviction. I don't know is the best spiritual place that I could be. I'm not supposed to know. Okay. And we'll get more into that in a little while. Um, but I do love that he touched on something very early here that it speaks to my heart. And of course, as a part of my, as I said, my educational pursuits, my literary pursuits, um, he said, it's like I had a sort of spiritual PTSD. Guess what? Spoiler alert. He did. PTSD is a very real part of this process. Um, something I'm writing about. It felt like I was slowly following, falling down a hill from ledge to ledge, deeper into a canyon that I didn't know was there and that seemed to have no bottom. It was as if something started unraveling and it just kept going and did not stop. All right. How many of you had that experience? Seriously, it's one question. Seriously, one question. I just need this one question answered. And in the answer to that question, 15 more questions pop up. Well, now you're down the rabbit hole because that's what this process is. It bubbles up unexpectedly inside of you. And then when you start down the process thinking you're going to have a nice, neat little end, the whole world drops out from underneath you. And you're stuck in this place of a constant question and answer scenario. Honestly, I'm going to tell you a secret. I said this the other day. When I was a kid and people talked about heaven, 
And they would say, oh, we get to worship God forever, streets of gold, all this stuff. I literally sat there and thought, God, that sounds boring. I know, that's horrible. But it did, it sounded boring to me. And I love to sing. I was a worship leader. I love to sing. But it still sounded boring. So here's what I want to posit. What if eternity is nothing more than being able to ask as many questions as we want, learn as much as we want, and continue to always be furthering our understanding of ourselves and God? That sounds interesting. All right. Anyway, sidebar. Sorry. Um, So anyway, I love that he brought up the psychological aspect of this. As I mentioned, that's kind of my, my point of study is the psychology of all of this. And I really believe that there is a very valid and very reasonable explanation, although the process doesn't feel reasonable. Okay. So he wanted to drop a short note to the heresy hunters out there. Hey, all you heresy hunters, the ones that have asked me if I like smelling sulfur and all the fun little things that Christians say with so much love. Anyway, so he says, so my friends, to those Christians who are deeply uncomfortable with what is happening in the name of Jesus, to those who have doubts, to those teetering on the edge, to those who have left, to those who are spiritually curious, let's find out if there's any food for the soul in the ashes. Let's find out together just how much Christianity and spirituality are evolving. Let's face the reality that our understanding of God is shifting. Let's celebrate the richness of our shared human experience. Let's not play games of worthiness anymore. Let's clear out the blocks to God, even if the word God no longer makes sense. Uh Uh-oh. Let's clear out the blocks to a fully human, spiritually vibrant, and wildly loving life. Let's embrace the upheaval of our age and trust that the great spirit is stirring over the waters of chaos once again. Let's stand on Mount Sinai and embrace the silence of the universe. Let's abandon anything unhelpful. Let's allow the camel to bite us. In fact, let's stick our arm right in his mouth. Let's touch the teeth marks with our fingers, acknowledge the places we've been wounded but not destroyed. It's time for easy explanations or quick, it's not, I'm sorry, it's not a time for easy explanations or quick fixes. In fact, let's be honest about the places we've been bitten that don't make sense. They might be the things that we need to wake us up. And he quotes St. Francis here, uh, let us begin again for up till now we have done nothing. That's right. All that progress you thought you made in Bible school, uh, Sunday school when you were a kid, the the thousands of sermons that you've listened to, unless you can sit down and be realistic and say, I still know nothing, you're not being honest. You've, you've heard a lot of stuff. It doesn't mean anything. Um, I know that's a big statement. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about where he goes in this book. One of the first things, of course, and I'm, I had the same kind of experience, uh, and I actually labeled this section, get out of your country. Um, cause that's literally what God said to me. And I struggled with that because at first I was unclear on what God was saying. And, um, I even wrote about that. I have some writing on that, on that experience as well. Um, but he's talking about the fact that in, in the course of questioning, we often are taken to a place where people are not very happy to hear from us. They don't want to know what we're struggling with. It makes them uncomfortable. That is actually uh, again, a psychological defense mechanism that each one of us employ when we are confronted with things that scare us, uh, challenge us, or we're just in a place we don't feel like giving a damn what anybody else thinks. It, it's just natural human response. Um, but anyway, he talks about that. The idea that 
uh, he, he was being called away from something that had been very familiar to him. And of course that is again, very destabilizing. Um, and he says at first I didn't find what I was looking for. And he likens that to just being across the border of something like you're just getting started. Um, he said, had I received the answer to all my prayers, been given the golden tablets of divine instruction or ready-made job description, the story couldn't be trusted. And I agree with him. Um, he said, I felt like a spiritual failure. I had accidentally stumbled onto the fertile ground of real change. So right there, when you feel like a failure, you're on the cusp of it. This is where the real journey begins. This is where the real learning begins. This is where the, this is where all the exciting stuff happens. All right. So he is talking about something that of course, many of us have experienced. So for a little while in the book, and again, I'm more interested in the psychological aspect of this whole process, but he actually goes through a lot of the tenets of his belief system that he questioned. And so I'm going to give you those. That's what the book is about. Um, one of the first things that he takes on is original sin. <gasps> Gasp. Everybody in the room just stopped. We can't, we can't talk about original sin. That is tantamount to heresy. Exactly. Um, original sin, I know a lot of people believe that's biblical. I challenge you right now to go find those words in the Bible. Go find the words original sin in the Bible. And you're not going to find them. Um, but one of the things that he talks about, and it's again, something that I experienced very personally in my life. You're hearing me turning pages um, because I have so many different things here I want to bring out in this book. I have all these things highlighted. Um, he talks about the shame and blame game. Um, he says, when you believe that your core identity is a problem, you will end up fulfilling this negative image. Yeah, see, psychology. The constant use of shame and rules only makes the situation more intolerable. You can even use original sin to justify bad behavior. Well, I guess I really am a wretched sinner. That's why I did this. I'm pretty much worthless. Forgive me. I'll try harder next time. And it's a cycle. I used to have a friend, um, very dear friend, and he's gone. He's passed on now. Um, but one of the things I loved this man, he was always an encouragement. He was always uplifting. But one of the things that he always said that bothered me was, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I know that that's a very Christianese thing to say. But it always bothered me and I didn't know why. And it, it wasn't until a few years into this process that I realized that we are just overwhelmingly defining ourselves by being a sinner. And then we're surprised when we quote unquote sin. Uh, we've got to stop that. Again, original sin is, is, is a process of helping us blame ourselves for things and then justify the reason that we did them. Um, it's not a good thing. All right. So he goes on to ask a question though. And this was a question that stuck with me for a while. What if I'm not a problem for God? See, now for many of us, I'll, I'm going to only speak from my personal experience. I grew up, of course, with a belief in God. I was in church from a very young age. I truly believed God didn't like me. And I know that sounds silly because we're raised to believe in a loving God. And I was raised that way too. But in my heart, I didn't believe he loved me. I didn't believe he really liked me. I believed that he felt like he was under a contract because I had said the magic words, I accept Jesus into my heart. And therefore God had no choice now but to accept me, right? But what if, as he asks, I'm not a problem for God? I want you to think on that for a while. That, that'll mess up your mind for a little while because that's how most of us have seen ourselves for so long, right? Um, he talks about what if it's original goodness, right? All, he, this is a quote. All of a sudden, we recognize our espoused theology and our practical theology are no longer in alignment. We discover that our adopted theology and our living theology are out of whack. 
This is a chance to wake up, to get curious about this lack of alignment. When people sat in my office sharing their hearts, many of their struggles were rooted in this lack of alignment. This was the same lack of alignment I felt on top of Sinai, but I didn't have words for it at the time. There's an incongruency to, to our lives, right? Um, there's this dichotomy that we live inside of all the time. God is love, but God will burn me in hell if I don't toe the line. Those are very real psychological issues that each one of us struggle with. And for the most part, in, in my experience and in the people I've had these discussions with, we tend to shove those things away and think, I, I can't deal with that. So I'm just, I have to not think about it. Well, what happens when we start thinking about it? Well, it's one more, it's one more brick or domino, whatever you want to, you know, allude to. It's one more domino that topples in this situation. So he is contrast, uh, comparing and contrasting original sin and original goodness. I really kind of liked that discussion. Um, but let's go on to the next one. He's talking now about eternity, right? And he tells a story. He had a conversation with, a, I believe it was a Jewish rabbi. And he was asking, and he said he felt so embarrassed because at one point it sounded like he was trying to, um, to convert to the Jewish rabbi. And he asked, he's like, well, if you died today, where would you go? We all know that question, right? How many of us raise your hand if you ask that question to somebody? Um, because that's a, that's a very much a part of our evangelical background um, that we need to evangelize. We need to get people saved. He asked this rabbi that question and the rabbi's answer was amazing. He's like, that's not an important question. I, I bet he stood there with his mouth hanging open. Like, what do you mean? That's not a, that is the important question. But this guy said, no, that's not an important question. In his mind, it was not about some afterlife, some someday. It was about the here and the now, how we live our lives here and in the now with the people around us. Um, and so I thought that was pretty interesting. It kind of made me laugh a little bit. Um, but I want to get to a page here. <coughs> Excuse me. So he's, he's talking about letting go of that argument, right? Against the existence of an afterlife. Um, now, I know that's upsetting for some people. We want to believe that there's more. Maybe there is. I don't know. I have ideas on that subject, but they're evolved ideas over time. And of course, I still don't know. Um, but he, he says something here that I think is very, uh, again, it's one of those pivotal points where we have to really stop and ask where our ethics are in this. He says, if we think Jesus will take all the good people to heaven and torture everyone else, there's no need to do anything other than worry about being in the right group. He's right. That's Christianity right there. Worrying about being in the right group. Have a discussion with anybody. Face-to-face, -face, online, social media, wherever you want to do it, there's always somebody that will end up listing to you the requirements for you to perform or to do or to say or to believe in order to go to heaven. And ironically, hell seems to be one of those. And I have yet to find anywhere in the canon where it says that I have to believe in hell to be saved. That's just not a part of the Roman throne. It's just not, I know there's whole groups of people that try and make it about that, but it's not. And so, but that's an ethical consideration. How is it that I, as a Christian, am supposed to forgive my enemies and, and pray for those who persecute me and God is allowed to burn his forever in hell? It doesn't make sense. It's not fair for sure, right? So he, he brings up that question. I think it's a very, very valid question. Um, but he goes on about this conversation with the rabbi and he says that his, his response to that, he said it was, it was deeply spiritual to say, I'm not sure. We talked about that already. It's holy to say, I don't really care, but it's downright prophetic to say it's not an important question. 
that was his take on the situation, the more he thought about it. Um, so, and he uses the word seismic shakeup. I agree 100%. That one kind of, you know, there's that, that feeling of euphoria when you think, oh, there might not be a hell. You know, it's, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore. There's a, a moment of euphoria followed very quickly, if you're me anyway, by periods of almost PTSD-like symptoms of panic. Well, I was wrong before. What if I'm wrong again? What if now I I haven't done what I need to do and I go to hell someday? Oh my God. And you go on and on and on and on and you can torture yourself endlessly over these subjects matter, over these subject matter. I will tell you, I'm in awe of people that have settled this subject in their head that say, yeah, I just don't believe in it. I, I'm in awe of that because I would love to be at that place and I just haven't found myself there yet. Um, next subject. Again, each one of these we could talk for a long time about. Anyway, uh, inerrancy. Uh-oh, uh-oh. People get really upset about this conversation. Um, I, I want to give you a little background. Biblical inerrancy was invented in like 1913, uh, so even not that long ago. It was Christians declaring that the Bible was without every without error in every respect, including historically and scientifically. That's a big leap, ladies and gentlemen. Big leap. All right. Interestingly enough, Catholics responded in kind by claiming papal infallibility. Papal, papal, I don't know. Um, they got backed into the corner by science and they both panicked. They did tremendous harm to the Bible and to our understanding of spiritual authority. To claim human literature and man-made institutional figures are without error infallible is silly and embarrassing. That's him saying that. I didn't say it, but I do agree with it. So I'll cop to that. Um, again, very a very uh, big subject for people. Nobody likes to be told that their, that their Bible is infallible because if we don't believe part of it, then how do we know any of it's true? Those were words said directly to me in my own house when I started questioning the Bible. Um, but I think that we have to recognize that the Bible actually is something very different. Uh, it's a collection of books, right? We all know that. It's edited and written over a really long period of time, like hundreds of years. Ancient languages, right? How many of you speak all of them or can read them, right? Not many of us. Uh, contains a lot of different types of genres like poetry, Song of Solomon, um, history, myth, parables, letters, letters that aren't even written to us, but that we have we have elevated to a point of infallible or application to our own lives. Um, and even the language, he says this, even the language is mythopoetic, right? There's a lot of imagery, there's a lot of allegory. Um, I grew up wanting so badly to understand revelation because I really felt like that was a point of contention that we needed to understand that to know what was going to happen. It scared the hell out of me to be quite honest. Uh, or actually it, it scared me out of hell because I literally spent hours on my knees asking God to forgive me so that when the rapture happened, I wouldn't be here anymore. Um, because it, it was terrifying. However, if you realize and do some studying, you find out revelation almost didn't make the canon. Oh, they might've left us all hanging for a long, long time. Anyway, so we have to look at it and we have to take it at face value, but we also have to remember that we are reading translations and variations of original languages that we don't understand. So when a translation is done, we are now getting to read something through somebody else's lens. Yes, yes, I'm sorry, but they've used lenses. As a matter of fact, it was deeply troubling to me to find out that there are whole groups of people who sponsor translations of Bibles and they have agendas. Oh, agendas, agendas. Oh my gosh. 
That it really, no, in all seriousness, that really upset me because I thought how dishonest that is. You are literally translating to make your own point. That's called eisegesis, people. That's not exegesis. Those are good words. We should know what those mean. All right. So I want to touch on something here that he brought up. Um, he asks a question. Well, actually, I'll read, I'll read you this section. He says, so much of what passes for biblical certainty boils down to taste. I like my interpretation. Uh, my interpretation is better than yours because it's clear right here in the way that I read it. Therefore, it's right. And back and forth it goes. So there's no way out of this cycle. We end up gripping tightly to our interpretive convictions, believing they're the words, the very words of God, as if we're doing God a favor. Oh, we've all been guilty of that. Come on, be honest. You know that at some point you felt like, I have said all the right things. God must be so proud of me. Look at the favor I just did. God, I proselytized that person. I read them verses straight out of the Bible, told them what was going to happen to them if they died without God. God must be proud of me. You've done God a huge favor today. I know I'm being sarcastic. That's rare for me as most of you. No, I'm kidding. It's not rare. It's all too often. Anyway, um, so let me get to another page here because I've got more quotes. Um, he talks about the Bible being a beautiful mess. I kind of like that description. Uh, it's useful for teaching. We all know that. That's a verse that gets tossed at us quite often. But it's not the word of God in the way that we think. In fact, the Bible never claims to be the word of God. Did you know that? It's full of words written about God and about love and suffering and death and war and family by people who are trying to figure life out, make sense of their experiences, and, oh, gasp, tell stories because that's what they did. They had a very oral tradition of storytelling. And so we end up with this mess, as he claims it is, this beautiful mess. Um, and I know a lot of people, when we start questioning infallibility, it gets thrown at us that we have no respect for the Bible. I don't think that's true. I think I have a great amount of respect for the Bible. I truly, truly do believe, <clears throat> excuse me, that there is much wisdom in the Bible. There's beautiful, beautiful stories. There's tragedy. There's everything that we could ever read in any kind of literary genre is included in the Bible. And so, yes, of course it's important. Um, I just think that when we elevate it to a, a person of the Trinity that we've we've created a problem, um, it's a book about God. It's not God. And as a matter of fact, our view of God should influence our reading of the scriptures, not the other way around. Our reading of the scriptures should not influence our our picture of God. Um, and I know for all of you that are right now saying, well, how would we even know about God without the Bible? They did for a lot of years. It's called the Holy Spirit. We're all supposed to have that, right? But even that can be subjective. And again, that's another whole rabbit trail. See how this works? You could go on and on forever. Um, so he asks, he says this, and I agree. I think this is a great way when we approach the Bible. Rather than saying, what does this mean? How about we use, what effect does this have on me? Right? What's, what? is a value that I can take away from myself here. Not what can I shove down somebody else's throat or judge somebody else, but what, what does this change in me? Because that should always be our first mission field, right? Us, fixing us, splinter, eye, all that stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Um, he does touch on end times. I kind of have referenced that already. Um, he talks a little bit about the idea that we have a, a tendency to put our, our eschatology ahead of what's happening now. Let me give you an example. Um, 
Much of Christian belief, as far as eschatology goes, has a belief system that says at some point the Christians are out of here, that a world leader takes over, the world is destroyed before Jesus returns and judges humanity. Um, there's a lot of fire. There's a lot of natural disasters. There's, I mean, and I mean, you know, everybody's read, read the Left Behind series. I had it. I did. I read every one of those books, to be honest with you. Um, but what does that say? It's like, it's like fixing up a car. I'm going to give you an, uh, an allegory here. It's like fixing up a car, right? Doing all this work on it, building it, making it beautiful, and then putting it in a demolition derby. 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 Anyway, that's what it's like. Why would you continue to fix up the car if you know it's just going to be ruined? Well, that has a lot to say about how we treat our earth, how we treat one another. Um, if the enemies of God are going to be burned up, why do I have to give a crap about them? You know, I mean, it's not affecting my life. I'm going to heaven. I really do believe that that's a lot of the viewpoint. I don't mean it. I don't mean that people sit around and consciously say, I don't give a shit about other people. But I do think that they have this idea that, well, I'm covered. So, and I'm going to do my best for others. But if it doesn't happen, oh, well, right? Um, but he includes this poem. And, and I guess this illustrates this to me. I, I, this poem made me cry when I read it because I really felt the, the impact of it. It's called The Tourists. It's a section of a poem. Once I sat on the steps by a gate at David's city, I placed my two heavy baskets at my side. A group of tourists was standing around their guide and I became their target marker. You see that man with the baskets? Just right of his head is an arch from the Roman period. And all I could think to myself was, but he's moving. I'm moving. Redemption will come only if the guide tells them. You see that arch from the Roman period? It's not important. But next to it, left and down a bit, there sits a man who's bought fruits and vegetables for his family. There's a lesson there. Honestly, we put so much value in things and we lose people. And I really do believe that the point he's making there about end times eschatology is that's what happens. We are losing people because we're so worried about events. And we really need to put that focus back on the people. That's all I'm going to say about that section. That was the part that really, really, he goes on to a lot of other things there. It's very valuable to read. Um, so if you're interested, you can go back to it. Now he goes into evolution and science. Oh my gosh. How many of you sat in a biology class in high school as a Christian and cringed? Like, I'm not supposed to believe these things. I'm just going to sit here. Um, I even told my own kids when they were in high school, hey, you guys don't have to believe what they teach you. You just have to regurgitate what they teach you and get a grade, right? But what if they had actually learned? Oh, and they did, by the way. My kids are smart. They didn't listen to their mom. No, they did. But I, I believe that they were smart enough to find the value in a lot of different things that I would have probably not been happy about. Um, but anyway, let me go back to this. He talks about evolution. He says, I've come to think of evolution itself as a kind of theology, an expression of God's word. Evolution gives us words for a beautiful, complex, and mysterious reality. Everything is morphing, changing, expanding, growing, collapsing, and renewing. Guess what? That's you guys. That's all of us. Evolution is happening. Each one of us is changing daily. You know, there was a meme. I remember seeing this early in my, in my deconstructive phase, that if the me now, and I'm going to butcher this, but if the me now didn't think the me of five, oh, I'm sorry, if the me of five years ago doesn't think the me now is a heretic, I haven't grown. That's accurate because we will change. We will grow. We will, we will evolve in our thinking. And quite honestly, we will probably piss some people off along the way. I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. I think that's, I think it's important. 
Um, but he talks about God being found in the mystery. And he actually makes this point. Richard Rohr makes that point as well. Uh, I think it's a beautiful point. Where else would God be found but in, but in mystery? And that goes back to the ideas of certainty, right? Certainty has been equated with faith, and that's inaccurate. Uh, um, faith is the absence of certainty. Faith is that mystery. Faith is sitting in the darkness waiting for the light, it, it, knowing that it's coming. And th- that's what faith actually is. But we have elevated it to this place of certainty. Um, so like when when we talk about evolution and we talk about science, we feel like there's this this dichotomy, like we can't have allegiance to both. There has to be some separation, Right. But he actually says, this is no science religion divide anymore. We have an opportunity now to get us curious about human biological evolution, quantum physics, which by the way is fascinating, anthropology and space as we are about the meaning of the Eucharist. They are of equal theological significance. If we do believe that God created everything, we have to believe that God was important and it was very deeply involved in all of those processes as well. So what is wrong with learning about them? They're, they're, they are deeply theological, as he says. Um, and as I said, if you haven't studied quantum physics in, in conjunction with theology, I'm just going to say that is, that is fantastic stuff. You should really go check that out. Um, I know most of us got our, our quantum physics education through like the Big Bang Theory, right? Like string theory. That's the only reason we know those words. Anyway, go check it out. It's pretty interesting. Um, let me go back to my book here because I got myself on a rabbit trail. So let's talk, I'm actually, I'm just going to go on to the next thing because I'm actually running short on time and I want to make sure we give due diligence to everything in the book as much as I can. So how about how we see Christ? That's an interesting one because there, you know, that, that is a point of contention. Was Christ, uh, God in human form? Was he the son of God? Was he a man? Was there even a historical Jesus? A lot of people have a different, a lot of different beliefs on that. Um, and of course the second coming. So he actually talks about one time as he was teaching. I loved this. He gave his class an assignment. Um, they had to bring in different images of Jesus, right? So he says, obviously, they had a blonde Jesus in a bathrobe. Everybody, yeah, that's the first one. Um, Jesus with children on his knee against a backdrop of frolicking lambs. Uh, Jamaican dreadlock, Rasta Jesus. Um, icon with a halo glow Jesus. Goalie saving, J- goalie Jesus saving a shot. Ah right? Um, bodybuilding Jesus, Rambo Jesus. Come on. We all have our favorite, his pain, your gain, that kind of stuff. You know what you're talking, I'm talking about. Um, but it's funny. Every one of those is merely a, a projection of what we want Jesus to be onto the image of Jesus. Um, not too long ago, actually, well, it's been a couple of years ago, I guess. I read a book by Peter Rollins. I love Peter Rollins. And he made a, a comment about the fact that anytime we start to describe God, we have diminished him. And I had to sit and think about that for a few minutes, but it's actually true. If I try and tell you what God is like, you're getting it through my lens and I have immediately diminished who God is um, because I can never, ever know, first of all, or describe who or what God is. And I'll be honest with you, I don't want to. If I have a God I could fully understand or describe, that's not a God that is worth anything because I'm a mess. I don't, I don't need a God that fits my qualifications. I need a God that pulls me to his level, right? Um, and so I thought it was interesting that he did that little, and really gave you know his students an idea of, look, do you see how you see Jesus? This is, this is how you choose to see Jesus. So our, div- our divine king 
is the real divine king, not Caesar is what he says. Um, He was politically brave. He was noble. But again, the more we say those things, the more we're still putting our determination of value onto Jesus, right? Um, The people in the time of, of historical Jesus were dealing with Caesar. That's why so much of what Jesus said was controversial because he set himself at the same level as Caesar. That's what that's what pissed off the Roman authorities more than anything. They didn't care if he deviated from the Jewish scriptures or you know anything like that. He got they got mad because he was he was a direct threat to their way of life. Right? They wouldn't have cared if he was a direct threat to the Jewish way of life. They were a direct threat to the Jewish way of life. I mean, honestly. All right. So anyway, he goes on again. I'm going to cut this short a little bit about how we see Christ. Um. He says, our shared humanity is what makes Jesus' teachings worth paying attention to. He shared our experience in its totality from suffering to ecstasy. He didn't come to take us away from our humanity or from the earth, but more deeply into those things. That's the real genius of Christianity, right? When we move from our deepest human nature, we find God, the divine source of everything. The incarnation, the word becoming flesh also happens in us. We too are divine word being made flesh in our time and place. I know people freak out about that idea. Um, This is actually an orthodox teaching in the church though. Our true humanity is the discovery that we are also sons and daughters of God, all divine words spoken into being. That's right. You are a divine word spoken into being by a divine God. A healthier spirituality for the next century is one in which we move more into our raw humanity and not pine to escape the complexity of just being human. I love that idea because no matter how hard you and I try, we can't escape being human. It's not possible. And so Jesus came and showed us what it looked like to be fully human. And I think that that's where we lose it. We tend to err on the side of seeing how Jesus looked like God instead of looking to see how Jesus looked like us. That's what we can relate to more than anything. All right, so let's talk about salvation just a little bit. Um, I really loved his take on this. He actually advocates trying not to get saved. <laughs> I know everybody just choked on something. Um, no, but he had a conversation with a gentleman and the, and the guy asked him, he's like, I don't understand. It was an Israeli friend. And the guy says, well, I don't understand. Why does it sound like that's past tense? Like Jesus has saved us. He's like, shouldn't Jesus be saving us in the present tense? I mean, seriously, every one of us every day needs something that does something we need to be saved from if we're honest. Um, and his friend went on to say, look, you just want me to believe in Jesus so I don't burn in hell. That's what you call getting saved. He's right. But what is getting saved? right? So I'm going to read you this description. Continuing to grow into a life of wholeness, beauty, compassion, presence, grace, and love is what I now call salvation. Participating in making our world, our cultures, and societies a little more whole sounds like salvation. Worrying about my eternal address or being in the right group is hell. I agree with that statement. Um, For evangelicals in particular, we also believe quite literally that the blood of Jesus atoned for our sins as if physical blood was necessary for this transactional formula to work. Uh, a lot of my friends out there um, are familiar with the term deus ex machina, if I'm saying it correctly. Uh, basically a transactional God. I will do this for God. He will do this for me. But what if God was actually able to say, I forgive you without blood? Well, he was. He did. 
right? Even one of the prophets says, I do not require sacrifice, right? He wanted mercy. That's tattooed on my body, by the way. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus quoted that. Um, So we have this idea that there had to be some kind of blood transaction when in reality, God makes a choice, right? Um, But he talks about a healthy spirituality, even a healthy Christianity must walk out on transactional atonement. It's an unhelpful, damaging view of God based on a degraded view that human beings are essentially worthless. Salvation is about a certain way of being and becoming in the world. There's no magic formula that gets you across the line. Just because you convert to Christianity doesn't mean you're living a life of salvation. Salvation is a metaphor for a life lived with greater and greater integration and wholeness. In fact, the saving I'm trying to describe has very little to do with what religion we belong to. There's some food for thought. Um, so let's talk a little bit about transformation. I'm going to get to that. I'm, I'm rushing. I apologize, but I am rushing a little bit. Um, he talks about in Paul, transformation is not a conversion of, of living, being, consciousness, ideas, thoughts, and actions. It happens over time, or it is a transformation of those things. I apologize. It happens slowly. How many of you know that? It happens slowly. Look, I'm not a patient person. I'm not patient about anything in life. Um, a lot of people know, maybe some of you don't. I'm a bodybuilder. I have great expectations for how I want to look physically. Takes forever. Drives me crazy. I want right now progress. I want the fast food progress. You know, I just drive up, order it. I have it. I drive away. Um, but he's talking about these ideas. That's not how any of this works, right? It's a process. It happens slowly and it happens inconsistently at first. It's more lived than believed. Uh, it might contain a flash of blinding light like Paul had, uh, but then it's darkness. Paul had three days of darkness following that blinding flash of light. So we have to reali- realize that that may happen as well. And then Paul had many, many years of studying and coming to understand God before he stepped into any kind of ministry. You guys know that's in the Bible, right? I mean, like he seriously was gone for a while. Um, so he quotes this gentleman. I'm going to butcher this name, I'm sure. Teilhard de Chardin, above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it might take a very long time. I mentioned a little bit ago that I'm in year seven of this process. As, as far as I can pinpoint it, when I was about a year in, I remember seeing somebody say, yeah, if I, I've, I've been dealing with this for five years. And I literally cried. I thought, I can't do this for five years. The reality is when you start deconstructing, when you start questioning everything you know, this isn't a, a, a start process, end process, you know, junk in, junk out. That's not what this is. This is a lifetime now of learning to adapt and ask questions to evolve, to change and to grow. That's what this is. So even measuring it in years seems somewhat futile. So I should quit doing that because this is now just life. It's about taking a very long time. And that's why I said, wouldn't it be cool if that's what eternity is? That continuation of growth and understanding and learning and evolution. Um, so I'll, I'm going to finish up here in the next few minutes. I want to talk about sitting in the unknowing. He has a he has a section called that sitting in the unknowing. 
And he literally says, um, I'm no longer interested in defending or promoting what passed as the center of Christian faith. I was unsure of the word God. As I referenced earlier, different stages of deconstruction, there are those that actually reach a place where they wrestle with the whole idea of God. I'm one of those people. Um, in all honesty, I want to believe in God. I want to believe in this gracious and loving and merciful being who's greatly interested in everything that I do and what I and who I am. I just don't know that I'm quite there yet. And I am learning to be at peace with that. Um, I know there's a lot of people that say, well, you're not saved then, or maybe you were never saved. And honestly, I'm going back to what he said. That's not my, that's not my goal anymore. My goal is growth and understanding. And I feel like that's what he's saying a lot here as well. Um, and he, he brings up this point again, going back to what Peter Rollins said, everything that we try and, you know, that we use to describe God diminishes him. He says, every spoken word and every image of God is just an approximation. That's another way of saying it. It is. It's just an approximation. It comes from our understanding. And so we have to get comfortable knowing that we don't know. Um, He says this, we bear witness to the memory of, I'm sorry, I'm going to start that quote over. We bear witness to the mystery of existence, to reality, to our best attempts at naming the divine who is beyond all our striving. We honor the mystery of being alive as a pure gift. We trust that whatever we mean by God is just a hint. And we trust that this hint is loving and is love. Yeah, that's what we have to do. Okay, that's the path. Um, I thought something that was very interesting, and I'm just going to bring this up very, very quickly. He talks about two different kinds of ways of speaking of God. There's the, uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, the cataphatic and the apophat, apophat, apophatic. Ah, I probably got it wrong. Anyway, uh, cataphatic tradition speaks of God in the positive. So you know things like God is like, God is, those kind of things. Uh, the apophatic tradition speaks of God in the negative, about what God is not, or by subtraction. It speaks without images, without words. God is wordless. God cannot be spoken about. God has no name. God has no form. God has no image. God is not an object. God is not a being as we understand a being. God doesn't even exist, at least in the way we understand existence. Now that's deep. That's some philosophical stuff you can sit on for a while. Because what is existence? And we're down a rabbit hole. Um, he quotes Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas. I can't say that either. I, I'm so sorry. I'm struggling over all these words. You guys, I'm getting over a cold. And honestly, my throat is not wanting to work with me anyway. So Thomas Aquinas says, the extreme of human knowledge of God is to know that we do not know God. So there, that's what you can take away from all of this. We do not know God. We can't describe God. God does not exist as that we understand existence. And we keep trying to put God into human terms of understanding. And it's not going to work. It just doesn't work. Um, so we're getting to the end of the book. I want to finish up here. I've got a few more minutes. Um, but I, I really loved this process he talked about. And I think it's very, very important. Um, he used some biblical examples. Everybody is aware of, or most people are aware. Remember in the Old Testament, when Jacob wrestled with God, he didn't come away unscathed. And I think that's really important to understand in this, in this uh, process, um, just purely from an experiential level, but from a psychological level as well. You will not come away from this unscathed. Jacob walked with a limp after that experience with God. 
you may walk with a spiritual limp as well. That doesn't mean that you're broken and that there's something wrong with you. It means that you battled. It means you strove to understand. It means that you were brave, right? Because this takes a lot of courage to go down this road. Um, In some of my writings, I've even mentioned that. I hold no one responsible who stops and says, I've had enough. Uh, But as for me, I have to keep going. That's what this is about. And so he goes into this last part using Jacob as an example, but he also talks about Jonah. Remember Jonah and the whale? Like that's a kid's story, right? Like felt board story. Um, But we really need to have a better understanding of Jonah. Do you realize that the people that Jonah was going to evangelize, that God sent him to evangelize, were actually enemies of the Jews? I mean, anybody reading that story in in Jewish history would have cheered Jonah for running from God. Like they would have been like, that's right. We're not evangelizing those people. They don't deserve God. As a matter of fact, Jonah's pretty pissed off when he finds out, well, they accepted God. Now what? Right? Because they had an expectation of who God was, that they were God's children, nobody else. Right? But anyway, the whole point of that story being like the three days in the belly of the whale, right? And then Jesus comes along and he actually references Jonah. And we see that, you know, most people see that as some foreshadowing of Jesus's death, three days in the tomb. But Kent here goes into a different idea on this. He actually talks about the fact, let me get to the page, that that this is an ongoing trend, right? That we have to pass through this. We have to go through this whole experience. And when we do, we're actually following in the footsteps of Christ, right? So I'm going to read you this section. He says, but here's where we learn a new kind of faith one that isn't based on abstract theological beliefs or statements. We learn to trust by our own staggering experience of descent and death that the mystery of God is cooperating with our running, resisting, questioning, fleeing, doubting, depression, addiction, hoping, loving, leaving, and returning. Through this descent, we discover the great secret of real spiritual transformation. To go down is the path to a greater going up, to union and to wholeness. In the sweet darkness of the whale's belly, we get a glimpse of our own truth in the center of our own being, which is also the place where we meet God. So for those of you that are struggling in this process, you're, you're facing all the emotion that goes along with this. First and foremost, know that that's normal. Um, it's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to grieve God. That's what you're doing. In case nobody has shown you that, you are grieving God. You're grieving your past, your relationships, your understanding, yourself. This is a deeply emotional and troubling process, but it's in the darkness, in the mystery that we find God. That's the book. I fully, fully have so much more there that could be shared with you. I really say this is a great book. You should read, as I said, I've listened to it twice. I've read it two or three times. I really feel like there's even more I can learn from it. So I wholeheartedly feel like this is a book that I would recommend to people to read, especially if you're going through a process of deconstruction. Um, There's also going to be more books this year coming out on that by Choir Publishing. And actually, I'm hoping that this is my year. Actually, I've determined this is my year. I will be published this year. My book is on deconstruction and its application to the grief cycle. It is a psychological book, but it is not, not written from a scholastic point of view. It's written from a very snarky, 
I'm struggling through this process point of view, just like everybody else. Um, anyway, that's it for today. I am excited about some of the stuff we have coming up. I want to share, uh, a little bit about a podcast that we have coming up. Um, many of you know who Kevin Miller is. Uh, he was responsible for, uh, a documentary on hell, right? It's called Hellbound. It's fantastic. It was one of my first, um, experiences with uh, questioning that belief system uh, caused some consternation in my household, as a matter of fact, uh, by those that watched it with me. Uh, but Kevin is coming on the podcast with me. We're going to talk about, I saw Satan fall like lightning and my medic theory. Just in time, Kevin also has a new documentary movie coming out and that'll be coming out in March. So we're, we're going to hit right around the same time. Really excited to have him on. I'm looking forward to that conversation and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Anyway, I've had a great time kicking this off again with you guys. I know it was just me today. We're going to have lots and lots of different people on, lots and lots of different books, um, maybe some arguing here and there, because uh, that's always fun for me. I like to argue and, and figure things out. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us again. Look forward to sitting with you again. Take care, have a happy day, and go read a book. Bye, everybody. Bye.